Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Climate Ready. This is Alex Maroner, and I'm joined once again by Ingrid Timbo. We've now made it to the final installment in our special mini-series covering COP26 and national climate policy, and with the COP now firmly in the rearview mirror, we thought it made sense to digest some of the major trends and outcomes, plus take a peek at what lies ahead for 2022. That's right, Alex. And in order to get a variety of perspectives, we've enlisted a couple of our colleagues at Agua who have pretty different histories in terms of their COP participation. So first we'll hear from John Matthews, our executive director, who's been attending COPs for over a decade. And then we'll hear from Pani Ipo, who is a young water professional and Agua's policy consultant who participated in her first COP this year. I hope you all enjoy the conversations. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining in this final installment in our COP26-focused mini-series. Now, Climate Ready's Ingrid Timbo was part of Agua's delegation at COP26, wearing her hat as Agua's policy director. She was joined by Agua's executive director, John Matthews, as some of our boots on the ground. We brought in John to pick his brain about his recent experience over his eight or so days at COP and his 10 or so years attending the UN climate conferences more generally. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us today, John. I am thrilled to be here. John, I don't think you've been on for a couple seasons, so it's good to have you back. I'm the silent partner. Yes, that's right. Back for like a three-peat or or so, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, keeping it in the family for this episode. So we've talked about on the podcast and in other episodes that um, earlier this year at COP26, we had the first ever water and climate pavilion at a COP. And this is kind of a a major milestone for the water community globally. And that this was a a pavilion and a platform um, that Agua played a really important role in shaping. Could you speak a little bit from your perspective, John, about why you think this was important and what you think the impact of the water pavilion was? It's a really good question, Ingrid. And I'd also be kind of curious to hear your, your reflections too, because you, you were there in, in person and Alex, you weren't in Glasgow, but you were very active in, in helping to organize events. I know you were watching a lot of the events. So I think maybe in contrast to a lot of the people who were active in, in the pavilion, I actually think the biggest impact of the pavilion may have been on the water community itself and, and less on the climate community. I'm going to say that for two reasons. One is, in the past, there have been at most kind of a handful of water-related events in the COP process. So you also meant that that the number of people who were involved, it was kind of like a self-selecting club. And it was very often the usual suspects, uh, seeing people from one COP to the next, there'd be, you know, a new person here, maybe one person would would, uh, kind of leave the process, but it would it was a lot of the same folks over and over again. This year, we made like a really big step level change. And there were hundreds of, of people in the water community that were involved in organizing events. There were probably somewhere around 100 events in the pavilion itself, and maybe another 50 or 100 water related events outside the water pavilion. And also you had, uh, as, a, as the first virtual hybrid COP, you had lots of people probably thousands of people that were paying attention in faraway places. So institutions that never had a budget to engage in COP, they never sent anybody to COP, 
uh, suddenly they have an insight into what this looks like, what the climate community is doing, how they think, their, their language, how they frame problems. They were confronted with a whole new set of terminologies. And I, I have to think that uh, what that has, has really done is it's tried to bring the water and climate communities more closely together. And I think it also means that the kind of standing mass of people in the water community going forward is going to stay involved in COP. It's not just a small golden circle of 10 or 20 or 30 people. It's hundreds of people that are going to be paying attention. We've heard a lot of positive outcomes from the water pavilion, but it's important to point out too that the water pavilion is just one of many pavilions, and that is just one small but important part of COP too. There's also other avenues for maybe civil society organizations to engage. And then there's the whole official negotiating process itself, plus all of the conversations uh, and bilaterals that take place in the hallways and, and maybe even behind closed doors. So as a whole, when you're thinking about the takeaways that you've been, you've been talking about, what were some of the biggest achievements that might've come out of COP26 and maybe what were some of the biggest misses? Great question. So this is uh, uh, 2021. My first COP uh, was about 12 years ago. It was Copenhagen, COP15. And really up until COP25 in Madrid, I'd say adaptation and resilience issues were really small uh, on the agenda. Maybe like in Copenhagen, maybe it was 5% or less of what people were talking about. Uh, in Madrid, the, the previous COP uh, to Glasgow, maybe it was 10%. I mean, that's a pretty small change. This one, it felt like it was 40%. And I, I really credit the UK to... Uh, opening up a lot of space to talk about adaptation resilience. And uh, I think they allowed um, people to say in all kinds of countries, we're really concerned about the impacts that are happening, that we need to do something about them. We need to really get ready for the impacts that are, that are, are going to come. And we need to think about what economic development and growth and, and how we manage natural resources, what, what it looks like in a shifting climate. And a lot of that is about water. So I think by the UK elevating adaptation resilience as an issue, it, it effectively dragged in water as, as a big issue in lots of discussions, formal and informal. So I think that's a gigantic takeaway. And I think it's kind of a one-way street. I think it's, it's something that people in uh, COPS going forward, it's, if anything, it may even shift to be like adaptation dominant in the future. That's my biggest positive takeaway. My, my biggest negative uh, might be that we spent a lot less time than in some of the previous COPs uh, kind of talking about how finance uh, can, can really enable a lot of uh, good adaptation work. For years now, we've been kind of framing in the COP process that the amount of funding for adaptation, and especially for water resilience, is like a, a quantity issue. But I, I felt like, especially in Madrid, we made real progress about trying to frame it as a quality issue, that finance could actually elevate the number of really good projects. And what, what I heard from a lot of countries is that they have money, um, but they, they need better projects. That's what I'm hearing from the countries. And ironically, it's what I'm hearing from the, the donors too, is they have money that they're willing to spend, but they need better projects. And I feel like there's a dotted line there that we need to ink in in a solid way. 
Yeah, I think what you're speaking to, John, there about this need for better projects is something that we've kind of been anticipating, I think, in our own work for a number of years and that we've been saying, you know, as the UNFCCC and, and the Paris Agreement moves towards implementation, naturally, you're going to move more towards projects and move, you know, less towards these larger agreements and frameworks and negotiations and more of like, how do we actually implement? And so countries are now starting really, really to grapple with that. So it's not just, do we have the money in place, which, you know, in some cases, yes, they do. In other cases, no. And and there's still a very big gap there. Um, and that was really exposed, I think, at this COP2 in the larger negotiations and not quite getting to the, the amounts that they had initially hoped. But really, ultimately, even if you have the finance in place, it doesn't really matter if the projects aren't good. And so I think that that's something that countries really are asking for, for help on now. And that's something, you know, we saw here. And I think it speaks to some of the work, you know, that we're doing with partners and others elsewhere and that we will continue to do. And I think this will be the major crux of our policy work in the coming years, um, as well as is working with countries on how do we do better adaptation, not just finance it. I, I totally agree. And the positive thing is, as a water person that I, I saw in Glasgow that I'd never seen before uh, were, were climate people who said, we recognize that a lot of our work is about water and we really need help with that part. The, there was a West African delegation that I met with they, and they literally said, we're not here to ask you to help us get more money. We, we need you to help us make our projects better. And that's just a transformational framing of the, of, the, of the problem in my mind. Just a kind of honest, earnest, heartfelt statement that water is critical to what we're doing on, on climate and we need guidance there. Yeah. So switching gears just a little bit, you know, one of the larger critiques that we've heard about COP26 is that it wasn't very inclusive, um, that it was very limited, and especially participants from the global south were largely excluded. And partially that was due, of course, to the global pandemic that we're still experiencing. And one of the ways that they tried at least to overcome some of those barriers is through putting a lot of the content in in a way we've never seen before, putting that online. So this was the first COP that had a fully virtual component to it. So it was an actual hybrid COP. How do you think this affected the overall COP? And do you think there will be any sort of like lasting implications of this? Or do you think this will eventually go away? I'll answer that, that that last question first. I really hope that we stay hybrid going forward. And going back to my my earliest point, I think more people feel like they have a stake in the COP and that they, they, they may not be able to attend. It's expensive to go to COP. It uses up a significant part of our budget every year for transport, for room and board while we're there, try, trying to mobilize folks. And we sent the largest delegation we'd ever uh, sent this year. It is hard to do, and, and most institutions, I think, are not equipped to process it. And I'm not sure that it's people need to be there. Most people need to be there for uh, days and days. But having them be able to, to see us, I think, in COP, it makes us more honest. It makes, makes uh, us uh, more effective. And I think the other part is it helps us really open up to very non-traditional COP participants. So... Like one of my favorite sessions was on, on agriculture and water. And 
they uh, brought in a farmer from India <laughs> and and had him talk. And that was really important. To, I mean, the, the room got really quiet when that guy was talking in that session. He was talking from his farm and about the issues that uh, climate change brings into his operation. I mean, I think it, it says something that, that that we can bring in people that are being affected on a very direct, very personal level. This is not just well-dressed people with expensive suits and dresses that are being involved. So I think it, it was it was really important. Also to give some sense, I never heard the kind of final numbers, but I'd estimate maybe there were 20,000 people or so physically uh, in the insecure zone at COP. Could be a little bit more, a little bit less. A big COP in the past would be like Copenhagen or Paris, uh, 2009, 2015. Those had, you know, 50,000 people in the secure zone. But I think the numbers I've heard about the virtual attendance, this was a 100,000 person COP. And I, I find that completely credible. And I hope next time it's 150,000. One thing that I would also say to differentiate between having like virtualized pavilions and blue zone and kind of these larger engagement spaces, I 100% agree with you that we should absolutely have a virtual component to them so that we can have more participation. I think where the virtual part does get somewhat challenging is on the negotiations side of things. That part just doesn't, it, it, you know, they've kind of tried to do some of that virtual and that really does not work very well. And, and that's why they really push to have a, you know, it was unclear even till a couple months before the COP whether it would be fully virtual or hybrid. And I think it was a good decision in the end to have a physical in-person component because I think there, at least for the negotiations part of it, you really miss out. You can't, you can't do those effectively online. And so I'm sure that that part will stay in-person. And I'd also add, just like all virtual communications, there are parts of it that just suck and don't work well. Uh, but it was so much better than what we'd done before. And I think that it set like a new, a new floor for us that we, you know, we, we still need to find the ceiling to, and, and that we, we can lift that floor even higher next, next time, hopefully. Yeah. I think it's, I hope this is the first of a, of a trend because it's a step towards transparency and a step towards democratization. So just because you're able to participate virtually does not mean that you will be able to directly be speaking into John Kerry's ear or impacting negotiations that directly, but you can certainly get your voice heard. You know, yeah. all of these events have different opportunities through chats and questions uh, to really take part and be an active participant. Someone could be out demonstrating in the street with a sign during the day, and then later that night, they could log onto their computer and they could actually be in some of these events, getting their voice out there. So I think it's a, yeah, a, a step in the right direction, certainly. I heard one person say, I think it's it's true that the center of action, unlike previous cops, was not in the negotiation space. It was actually in the secure zone where all the pavilions were. And that we in that that space were the ones who were kind of driving the issues. And I think as a result, a lot of the people who actually kind of hold the reins of power, a lot of the corporations, a lot of the people who actually have power in government, maybe some of the finance institutions. I think they, they felt like that they're being watched much more carefully, that there's a, this strong sense of anticipation and an urgency on our side. We're being patient now, but we want them to do stuff and, and to move forward. And, 
And yes, all of the goals were not met that the UK said or that the important external actors were. But we saw a lot of a lot of movement too. A lot of money was pledged, not enough, but a lot. We moved from, you know, the, on the carbon mitigation side, a uh, shift from like a 2.7 degree world at the beginning of COP to like a 1.8 degree world. That's a huge change. We still need to do a lot in terms of, of implementation, but I think we've opened up that, that golden circle in a, an important and hopefully lasting way. And maybe just as we get towards the end of the conversation, I just had one more reflecting question, looking back, and then um, we'll have one pulling out the crystal ball and looking forward a little bit. But John, you have you have a young son, and I'm curious how you communicated. You just took a, a big trip, your first trip in a long time to take part in this important COP process. And so, you know, we were talking about some of the big trends and successes and failures, but as you summarize the COP to your son, or how would you describe it overall, you know, especially to someone who's outside this sphere, someone in the public and who may just be tangentially interested in climate change? I can report actually on, on, on what I've been saying. The week after the COP, I actually went to my son's school. I've been sending email updates and answering email questions and even sending kind of short video clips uh, from the COP to uh, my son's classes at his school. And I, I wanted to come in and kind of report out to them as well. And they, they had they had some really, uh, really important questions. They wanted to know what countries were doing well, which ones maybe had not been as supportive or as aggressive or as ambitious. They wanted to know, is someone going to come take away their cars? <laughs> they would also ask really important questions like, is Jeff Bezos doing a good job with the money that he's giving? I think th they were a good example of, of a certain amount of mistrust that they have about uh, some of the rich and powerful individuals or entities. These are 11 and 12 and 13 year olds. One girl, she was really quiet. Then just at the end of the time that I was in her class, she, she turned and she looked at me. She'd been, I felt like she'd been listening really hard. And then, and she said, this all makes me really angry. And all I could say was you're right to be angry, you know, it, cause you didn't cause any of this and it's not your fault. And yet you are going to have to live with a, a lot of this. And what I'm hoping is that you know, we can make the options for you easier and more open going forward. And hopefully we can also talk about that there may be some positive side effects from climate change. And they were really curious about that. They'd never kind of thought of that there might be positive things that were happening about climate change. Like one, one boy, he said, well, what's an example of something positive that's coming from climate change? And I said, well, probably the most important one that I see is when we get together to sit and talk about a problem, there are a lot more people and different kinds of people that are sitting around the table to solve it now. That never would have happened before. And I think those are also kind of one-way streets. They're, they're things that they're going to continue to accelerate and amplify as we go forward. Yeah, I think it's really important to try and at least keep that perspective in mind um, as well. It's not just important for the kids, it's important for us too, who work in this space to remember that there are things coming out of this that will hopefully be a net positive for humanity going forward. Exactly. I feel like my language has shifted a little bit around this. A lot of Agua's work has been focused on how you assess climate risk, often through a kind of technical 
processes. And I feel like that's a little cold and it's a, and it's a little limited in some ways that we, we still need to do that. We need to do it really well, but we also need to talk in a different way. We need to talk, including through the COP process about what prosperity looks like, mm. what, like what is, what is a good life look like in a time of climate change? That's a different way of thinking. It's not, you know, with all due respect to Greta, it's not the way that she thinks. She she communicates in terms of loss and, and destruction and taking people's future away. When I'd say, like, let's let's talk about like what a good future can look like with climate change. It's a completely different discussion than just trying to minimize the effects of bad things. It's trying to find opportunities to have new good things. And I, I want my son to have a better life than I've had. And, and I want to make sure that he, he can find that. Yep. So we're rapidly running out of time here, but I did want to look forward a little bit. We had an earlier podcast episode with a um, representative from the Egyptian government. And we know that Egypt is hosting the next COP, COP27. Um, which will take place in November of 2022. Do you have any sense, John, about any early sense about their priorities or or what we want to be thinking about for COP27? I know you mentioned the UK did a good job of elevating adaptation and resilience. Do we think this is something that will be carried forward by Egypt? A lot, a lot of people may not know that the COP presidency rotates by continent in, in kind of major region. So this COP, of, of course, was a European COP. And the next COP is an African COP. And one of the things that I would have anticipated, but I, I was very pleasantly surprised to hear in real time during the COP is that Egypt wants to make this very much focused on African issues, on Middle Eastern issues, and water is at the center of that. And it's frankly, it's been at the center of of how they think about development for at least the last five or 6,000 years. And if there's one country that understands at the very heart of its social structure about the importance of water and water management, it's Egypt. And then the second day of this COP, I heard the minister for the environment from Egypt, the provisional president of COP27 stand up and in the conclusion of the event, she said, well, based on this session and the other things that I'm seeing and hearing already at, at COP, I see three clear priorities uh, that we want to elevate for COP27. And it's water, it's adaptation and resilience, and it's nature-based solutions. And that's profound. It's one, one thing if that message is coming from a country that defined the original definition of modern economic development, the UK, and it's one thing if it's coming from one of the oldest civilizations on the planet that's still, you know, a middle-income country uh, in, in the global economy now, and in representing probably the least developed continent overall. I'm excited about that. I think if we were a 40, uh, 60 adaptation to mitigation with this COP, I bet it's going to be 60-40 in Sheikh Al Sharma. Great. Well, yeah, I will be looking forward and I'm sure we'll we'll have more uh, content uh, next year that goes more into this um, as well on Climate Ready. And maybe we'll, we'll be able to get Egypt to come back and chat with us about their work towards COP27. All right. All right. Take care, everyone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for joining us, John. All right. Ciao, ciao. Thanks, John.
we mentioned at the top of the show, we thought it would be interesting to get more than one perspective on COP26. If John was able to use his years of COP experience to tease out some long-term trends, what could a fresh set of eyes shine a light on? So we'll juxtapose his reflections a bit with those from a COP first-timer. And so today we are joined by Agua's policy consultant, Pani Ipo, who is also the coordinator of the Oxford Water Policy Network in the United Kingdom. And she recently graduated with a degree in water science policy and management from the University of Oxford School of Geography and the Environment. She was able to travel with us to the COP. It was her first experience at a COP. And so we really wanted to hear from her about her thoughts in participating in the first time. So welcome to Climate Ready, Pani. Thank you for having me here today, Ingrid. Absolutely. So I really want to get your perspective because, you know, I've been to a few of these now and you get used to kind of the rhythm and, and what's going on. But as a first time attendee, I wanted to know what you thought of what we call like the global climate circus. This is my first ever COP and I have the privilege to see the organizations of the pavilion as well as being attending to the Blue Zone, which is also known as the Negotiation Zones. So I attended the second week and I realized as soon as I entered to the Blue Zones, I can see and sense the seriousness in the atmosphere. I feel like mm. everybody is shuffling through from one room to another, I would say almost running uh, around it. For me, it's very inspiring, and I have spent my days attending to uh, a mixture of official UN presidency side events or the pavilions event, uh, especially like the science pavilion, nature and resilience hub, and mostly in water pavilions. So uh, one of the highlights is that there are various representations from different levels of governments, uh, companies, NGOs, civil societies, and I had a chance to meet uh, new people, hear different perspectives about this criticality of the climate crisis. I must say that I'm an early career researcher and I came from the engineering background. So I knew that uh, there are many criticisms toward the, towards the COP and also its processes. And I can understand where it's come from. But I also think that it is very important to have this kind of climate dialogues in this global level of which like many parties and countries came together to strike for uh, the hope, I would say, in this gloomy chaos and existential threats that the humanity is facing for us and for our future generations. So for me, COP26 has a lasting impression. And of course, there are several ambitious goals, pledges and commitments has been made. And I think for young generation like us, we must ensure to keep track of them with a critical eye. Those are some really great reflections, honey. And you talked a little bit about the the intensity and really the sense of urgency that seems like it was pretty pervasive throughout the COP of the need for effective negotiations leading to to some real tangible actions and outcomes. And you also brought up the idea that there's some criticisms about this COP too, as there as there are each year. And one of the many criticisms that we've heard so far is that it was not overly inclusive, especially when it comes to voices from the global South. Mm -hmm. Did that ring true or did you mm -hmm. have maybe a little bit of a different takeaway? Some sessions that I have attended in the Blue Zones, I saw many speakers uh, who are women leaders, youth activists, indigenous community representations, and there's also even a day that is dedicated to gender. So you can see that the COP presidency is trying to be transparent and also advocates to be inclusive, but there's always a question of whether it is enough. 
So for example, as I have mentioned, I was uh, at the backside of the organization of the water pavilions. So the UK COP26 presidency has released the logistics information, especially the travel and COVID-19 restrictions uh, on the Friday, a week before the conference actually takes place. So I, I'm from Myanmar and I have faced many logistical issues and barriers to travel, even in a normal time. So mm -hmm. I don't think a week is just enough. And I could sympathize the confusions and the anger that the low and middle income countries delicate face due to this delay information, uh, especially like stressing on the visa processes and also the travel during the pandemic, in addition to the transmit time and filling out the vaccination form, et cetera. And another point I would like to uh, bring at is that the hotel and accommodation prices, they are extremely high in the city of Glasgow. So I would use the word insensitive in some planning and logistical arrangement, especially for those who are from global south, like people coming from Southeast Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa or Latin America, because it showed that getting to the UK, the visa process, and also like, you know, delegates coming from the red list countries, they face enormous pressure. So it excludes a huge chunk of participations from those nations, as well as like the voices that can be heard within the negotiation zone. Another point I also would like to bring up is the interpretation, especially in the pavilion halls. Uh, there is no centralized interpretation service whatsoever unless you spend a heavy cost of money, which also showed that the lack of inclusiveness in terms of planning to those who don't speak English, despite this being a global conference. You highlight a couple of really critical issues, and, and there's certainly not new issues, I would say, but Glasgow really, really... Uh, shined a light on the challenges that smaller or developing countries face in accessing and participating in these global climate conferences. And COVID has really exacerbated, I think, some of the challenges. I think it has also opened up more opportunities for virtual participation, for example. But there are barriers that still remain. I'm just curious, you've brought up a number of different things, but I'm wondering if there's anything that really surprised you? For me, like how much activities that are happening around the COP26, it took me by surprise. I mean, throughout this convention center, there, like even in the blue zone, there were four several negotiation events, side events, capacity buildings, action zones, pavilions events, you know, there are other activities outside and also like protests, calls for climate justice that are happening in the green zones and uh, like throughout Glasgow. Uh, for me, it is quite hard to grasp what is actually happening around and, you know, what negotiations are being made. Um, and it is really difficult to know if we are making differences or not. So I, as well as like other colleagues who I'm with in Glasgow, we were restless and spending the whole day observing, talking, taking notes and networking. The time is just simply not enough. So I think it's very important to plan ahead or like, you know, make a plan with a team to make the most out of this massive global event. I think one of the items they should consider handing out upon entry into the into the blue zone or the cop more generally is those the time pieces that Hermione Granger had in Harry Potter so that you could consider <laughs> oh, yeah. being in multiple places at once because as you that mentioned there ideal there are definitely dozens if not over a hundred events simultaneously taking place and it's maybe not only hard to keep track but you feel as though you might be missing something important so I, you're absolutely right that some advanced planning if you can't get a hold of the 
Harry Potter wizarding tool, then it might be your best bet. Uh, it's been really great to hear your perspective on this, Pani. And it was great to be in Glasgow with you and actually meet in person since Pani's been working with us for almost a year, but we haven't actually met in person. Um, and so it was really great for us to be able to actually be together at the COP for at least a few days overlapping. So I just want to kind of wrap things up. You're much younger than Alex or myself, and you recently just completed your second master's degree. You're definitely one of the young water leaders to look out for. So from your perspective as, as a younger person working in this space, are there issues or ideas that you'd mm -hmm. like to see better represented in the global climate mm -hmm. conversation? What have we been missing so far? I think this year, uh, especially in COP26, the global water community is speaking in a more unified voice and also with the stronger representations. And it has raised the role of water in climate policy substantially. However, in my opinion, outside of this water pavilions, all the, you know, the impacts of climate change, such as drought and disaster risk, were mentioned frequently, but I felt the role of water was not equally mentioned enough, especially in the country negotiation level. From the water community, we all know that water concerns international relationships, uh, peace and security, it concerns health risk, food, energy, and entire supply chain. But we need to assure the role of water is visible in the climate negotiation process as it becoming a really scarce commodity. I was uh, mostly in the water pavilion. Uh, so many delegates who are visiting the pavilion from the global south and also from the global north have issues related to the water in their nations, especially from the river basins to you know subsequent sectors such as food and energy production. So they reach out to us about the specific water-related actions uh, that need to be included in their climate policy, such as nationally determined contribution, NDCs, uh, national adaptation plans, etc. So I think we need to normalize this kind of negotiations in a larger scale going forward substantially in this climate policy arena. I also think the water community have identified that financing is a rather important component, especially to the vulnerable and volatile water infrastructures, especially like my country, which is in the global south. So reports show that only 3% of climate financing is utilized in the water sectors. And we do need to increase this financial support to these adaptation strategies. Those are all yeah fantastic insights. I think you're absolutely right that normalizing the prioritization of water within climate change discussions is is one of the first steps and that will really open up more financing opportunities and just making sure that water is not only thought of by these negotiators as as a risk and something that pops into their mind when they see a headline in a newspaper about a flash flood or a drought or extreme event but that it's really kind of all encompassing and that water can be viewed as a as an entry point across a lot of different sectoral activities yeah, I just want to thank Pani so much for taking the time today to chat with us about her reflections as a first-time COP attendee, hopefully not the last time. Hopefully you didn't come away from it saying, man, I never want to go there again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks, Pani. Thank you for having me here. So as you heard from our conversations with John and Pani, there was a great deal accomplished at COP26, especially when it came to elevating issues around adaptation and resilience, 
and highlighting water's key role there. But as with each year, there were some missteps too, and missed opportunities. Nevertheless, I was encouraged throughout my time in Glasgow and in the weeks since that we're really starting to see an emphasis from countries on seeking guidance for effective adaptation programs. And this is a niche where Agua is ready and happy to support. I was especially struck by some of what John said around reframing the broader climate adaptation conversation. You know, let's not just focus on assessing climate risk, but let's really think about a new definition of what a thriving society can look like in a climate-changed future. That's what we'll be doing here on Climate Ready, and we hope you join us. Stay tuned for next season, coming in 2022. Don't forget to follow the show and subscribe. Until next time, everyone. If you've enjoyed the Climate Ready podcast and would like to support Agua's work driving climate resilience, please consider donating. Contributions to Agua are tax-deductible in the United States and directly support Agua's program of work. Look for the link in the episode description. Thank you all for listening, and we look forward to bringing you a whole new season in 2022. Take care, everyone. The Climate Ready Podcast is produced by John Matthews of the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation. It is directed and edited by Alex Maroner and Ingrid Timbo. 